Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning. Wow, right? Praise the Lord. We certainly do want to give uh, Jesus glory, not just because of this building, but he died on the cross for us. That's why we're gathered together, right? Amen. And uh, it is amazing to be standing here with you today, though. Um, I'll tell you, just even as a staff and different folks on leadership, we had no idea that there'd be video or anything like that when you came here today for our special. This is the family gathering, by the way. This isn't the grand opening. So if you're invited to the grand opening, you need to leave. Um, everybody else. Uh, we're glad that you're here today. It's, it's just the fact that we're here is a celebration of the Lord and really represents. Yeah, you can give the Lord a hand for sure. And I, I look out and I see different folks that have served in so many different ways over the years. You know, there's been so much that's happened on this campus over the last couple of weeks. Uh, many of you have been up here uh, serving throughout the week and getting things organized and unpacking boxes and moving stuff around and going, that doesn't go here, this is the wrong building. Get these chairs in the building. And uh, it's been exciting to see the activity that's been happening. Uh, but I just want to just pause and say, not only have you know, people over the last few weeks, but over the last several years of sacrificial giving and prayers that have been answered, the fact that we're in this building is a testament to lives that have been transformed and God's presence being with us. You know, we invite him into this place now and dedicate this place in, in those ways, but uh, he's been doing that work over years, and this is really a culmination of that. We're stepping into a new chapter, but I don't want us to miss, like celebrating going into the new chapter, I don't want us to miss celebrating what God's done to get us to this place. Amen. And so I want to say thank you. I won't go through a list of names, but uh, thank you so much to so many of you that have given sacrificially, whether it's your time, uh, financially, many people have given sacrificially, the prayers that have been prayed. This is a, a testament to God answering prayer. Amen. And I just want to thank you. So thank you so much. Thank you to our staff. I was telling our staff the other day, we've got like a, a championship level staff and uh, they've been putting in a lot of hours getting things ready. Pastor Brad over at the, yeah, for sure. Not to, not to glorify any people, but all of them have been working, you know, 80, 90 hours the last several weeks. Uh, Drake, who's our tech director, slept here the other night. There is a shower, and he can tell you there's no warm water in it, uh, if you're interested in that. Uh, but so many people, our elders, you know, Pat, Vern was one of our elders, prayed up here. He and John Cullen, our executive pastor, so crucial in all the details of this. And we got our guys that have done the sound and, and lighting installation, our uh, general contractor, integrity builders. They, they were just so awesome. So there's so many people to thank. But we want to give all the glory to Jesus. Amen? Amen. And uh, one of the things I promised people when we only had 30 folks as a church People would ask me, like, what kind of clothes are you going to wear? What kind of music are we going to sing? Is there going to be a fog machine? And I was like, we don't even have musicians. Like, what are, you what are you asking me these questions for? I said, here's what I can promise. We're always going to preach the word. Make a big deal about Jesus. And so we're going to do that this morning. And I'm going to pray for us. We're going to jump into the book of Matthew today. And we're going to kick off our Christmas series, which is, as you saw from that video, it's called God on Mission. It's going to remind us of our mission as well. And so let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to gather in your name. Thank you for... People that don't know each other yet, I pray that they would meet each other in the lobby today. Thank you for people that are, have given and served and for our staff and elders and deacons and small group leaders and bridge kids teachers and ushers and greeters and parking lot team. And Father, thank you for so many people that have given their life to this church for your glory, not for an organization or a club or a cause, but because you died and you rose again. 
because you've given us life, because you're real, and we want this community to know that you are real and that you can transform them too. And God, I just pray that you'd be glorified through everything that ever happens in this building. I pray, God, that addictions will be broken here. I pray that people will be set free from sin in this room. I pray that at the very right at my feet, at the, at the altar here, people would, would trust you as Savior. And that, God, I pray that people would, their families would be transformed, that you'd become real, that people would be jarred out of the, this idea of religion or, or you being some you know, placebo effect crutch to get through life. God, I, I pray, God, that you'd just be so real and tangible that people would sense your presence when they come on this campus. God, I pray for our students that will be in the student building next hour. I pray for our kids that are in the kids' building both hours. God, I just pray that lives will be transformed. And God, I pray that you would saturate this place with your presence, with your spirit. And any, any time the enemy steps in and tries to cause division or, or strife or anger or tension or performance or any of that kind of stuff, pressure that comes in, God, that you'd remove that, that your peace would be here. We are so grateful to you. Give us your peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2 today, looking at what's a really familiar passage of Scripture if you're familiar with the Christmas story. However, I think we're going to look at it in a perspective that many of us have never thought of before. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 2, but as you do that, I just want to start by asking you a question. One of the things we want to be as a church is an authentic community, so the first question is pretty easy, but I'm going to ask you a follow-up question that gets to our motive level. First question is this, how many of you went shopping on Black Friday or Thursday night, any of that kind of stuff? How many of you went, a couple of you are like... I'm not sure what he's going to say next. Okay, we'll just assume that like 70% of you went shopping on Black Friday. Here's the motive question. I want to know why, why you went shopping. I'll give you a couple because it would just be chaos if you just started yelling out. I'll give you a couple options. And then some of you got drug shopping. There's going to be an other option, okay? How many of you went shopping because you wanted a good deal? All right, and one person's kind of excited about what they actually purchased. All right. <laughs> How many of you, it's a tradition, like you always go shopping with some friends or on your own or whoever, drag family, that's your thing? And how many of you, it's just other? Somebody made you go, there's some other reason that drove you to go out, how many of you raise your hand? I've seen people raising their hands now, they didn't raise their hands the first time, gotcha. I'm a pastor, I see that hand, I got you. I'm going to tell you, I, went, I always go Black Friday shopping, usually what happens in our house is that we'll eat, you know, turkey and all the Thanksgiving stuff. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. The Detroit Lions lose every year. They give you enough hope that they're going to be good enough. Then they lose the game. They lose. Then I go buy a newspaper, one of the big, you know, $5 newspapers at the gas station. I bring it back. Kids look through it, and they're looking at all the toys, and ladies look through it. I'm not sure what the ladies look at, but they're looking at stuff. And, and then the, all the guys in my family hunt. And so they're looking at, like, tree blinds and all kinds of hunting camo stuff. And, and I just, I just kind of sneak off. And I go to one of my favorite places to hang out, if you don't know this about me, it's Walmart. I love to hang out at Walmart, all right? And so some people think I'm kidding, I'm not kidding. I go there, especially, and you know why I go there? Because I like chaos. I like the crazy. In fact, do you remember when Hurricane Florence came through? My wife and I were talking about this last night. When Hurricane Florence came through a couple months ago, nobody in Raleigh could find water. Let me tell you where there was water. When the hurricane made landfall and everybody was hunkered down with plywood on their windows, I was at Walmart. They had tons of water. In fact, I was on my way home from a hospital visit for, for one of our, our members of our church. And my wife was texting me. She's like, there's tornadoes coming through North Raleigh. Get home. And on my way home, I'm like, well, I'm going to stop at Walmart. I want to see what's going on there. I just like, like the chaos. And so I always go Black Friday shopping after on Thursday night. Before they start their sale, I'll get there, kind of watch. You know, they got their pallets out. Nobody's allowed to touch anything. It's pretty cool. They blow a horn, and it, it's chaos. But this year I started a new tradition. I decided I was going to get all the men in the family to go shopping with me. 
And so I got my brother-in-laws to come with me. I got my nephews to come with me. They actually came. They, they were out there. We were ready to go. We got there before the sale started. I grabbed a couple things. Don't tell. I grabbed a couple things off the shelf early, put them in my car. I was one of the first people through the line. But my brother-in-laws didn't come to see the chaos. One of them came because he wanted efficiency, wanted to get his shopping done. And so he actually went to a different store while I was doing that. I'm like, no, you're ruining the moment. We're going to do this all night. And he got some stuff, and he's waiting out in the car afterwards. And my other brother-in-law, I think he just kind of got drug along in the process. One of my nephews was there. He wanted to see the madness as well. He was waiting for me when I got to the end of the aisle shopping. And he said, hey, they're all out in the car. They're waiting for us. <laughs> I'm like, to go to the next. Like, it hasn't, they haven't even opened the pallet of printer, copier, scanners. Have you seen them do that? Like, people are grabbing stuff, like stuff flying around. It's awesome. I don't know what the toy is this year, the fingerling or whatever. I haven't seen that fly off the shelf. Nobody's gotten in a fight over a $2.99 DVD. Like, I can't leave. Well, my brother-in-law, he's out in the car. He's done. He's ready to go. And so I get in the car. I grab him by the shoulder. I'm like, all right, next door. And he says, do you have something else to get? I'm like, that's irrelevant. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we came for different reasons. Why did you come here today? Why do you go shopping on Black Friday? Why do you do the family? You know, over the next month, there's going to be a lot of family gatherings. Some of you are going to go because of obligation. Some of you are going to go because of tradition. Some of you are going to go, you want to see your relatives. Some of you, you're the person who's bringing, you know, the cheesecake. And so you have to be, or the fruitcake. That's disgusting, bless your heart. But you're bringing that there. And they're counting on you for some reason. Why did you come? Why do people come to church? And we've got a lot of stuff that's happening over this next month as a church. And the next week's our grand opening. Obviously, we encourage you to invite your friends. And there's going to be a lot of stuff. There's a lot of work to be done still before they come this next week. But why would they come? Why would you invite them? A couple weeks after, you know, the week after next week, we're going to have a Compassion Sunday. We're going to have an international ministry here that sponsors children all around the world uh, in developing countries that don't have the opportunities we have. Why would someone come to that? We're going to have Christmas Eve services. The, the Christmas Eve is on a Monday this year. We're going to have a 3.30, a 5 o'clock service. I'm going to challenge you to invite your friends to that too and hear the gospel. Why would, why, do, why would anyone go to any church thing? And think about it. Some people go to church because they want a genuine encounter with God. I've been here in Raleigh area for 12 years now. And one of the things I've learned is there are a lot of Christians in our community that are kind of wandering. And they'll go from church to church. And, and many of them... Some of them are just consumers, and they're looking for the next, you know, fix from their spiritual journey. But some of them are like, I just want something that's real. I just want to find something that's genuine. Some people will come to church because they want to make connections, business connections. Some people are looking to meet a spouse. Some people are, are, are coming because just, somebody else expects them to be there. The parents are going to ask if they showed up at church. Or somebody, want, you know, their spouse is dragging them to church. And just think about all the reasons why people come. And this Christmas, we're going to ask the question, why did Jesus come? Why did he come here? Because there's a lot of answers to that question. Some of them sound kind of biblical, and they're not, and they don't really change your life. He came to enhance your life. He came to, to help you out, to give you a meaning and a purpose, and, and a lot of things like that that you don't really find in the Bible. But there's some statements that we find in the Bible that if we grabbed a hold of them, would literally turn our worlds upside down. And one of them's in our passage today. Matthew chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, where we're going to be, the context for this, this passage of Scripture, it's a familiar Christmas passage, but it actually doesn't happen at Christmas time. It's probably two years after the first Christmas, in fact. And so the context is, if you read Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy where Matthew is showing us that, that Jesus comes through the line of David. And then he tells the birth story of Jesus, but he doesn't tell it from Mary's perspective or from God's perspective. He tells it from Joseph's perspective, who's not even Jesus' birth father. 
He's this guy who's engaged to be married to this young woman who's telling this controversial, like we always sanitize the Christmas story, but think about how scandalous it is. There's this teenage girl, she's pregnant, and she's claiming to be a virgin. But you know the real scandal? It's in verse 23, Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles open up, you can look at it. It says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, talking about Isaiah 700 years before any of this happened. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. That's a miracle, but it's not the miracle. And bear a son. That's not the miracle. 50-50 guess on gender, right? Like some of you are like, the Lord told me you're going to have a boy. Well, you're 50-50. We'll see. And we'll stone you. Deuteronomy 18. If it doesn't, no, no, just kidding. And they shall call his name, here's the controversy, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew, if you read Matthew's gospel, it's interesting. It begins with the presence of God, Matthew 1.23. If you're familiar with the gospel of Matthew, you know how it ends as well. There's, there's a commissioning. It's called the Great Commission, many of us have labeled it. And it's really our mission to make disciples, to teach them everything Jesus taught us, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, to go out and share what God's done in our lives. But there's a promise at the end of that. Do you know the promise? That lo, I am with you Always. See, Bible scholars, they call when you have something at one spot and then at another spot to encapsulate two things, so they call it an ecclusio. At the beginning, Emmanuel, God with us. At the end, lo, I am with you always. Do you know what that means? Everything in the middle fills out. What does that mean? That God is present with us. All the teaching of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the sending of the Spirit is what it means that he's with us. And so that's the controversy is Emmanuel. But some of us, it's so familiar, we become apathetic to it. I want, to, I want you to, before we read the passage today, will you use your imagination with me for a moment? And I want you to imagine something probably most of you have never thought of before. Imagine what it was like to be God. Imagine what it was like to exist outside of time. Think about that for a minute. No time constraints. You're in the future. You're in the present. You're in the outside of three dimensions. There aren't, there's no constraining factors like, like we have. So you're, you're eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful. You don't need anything. You're completely content. You're totally satisfied. You are the creator of everything. This small portion of your creation that you made in your image has messed everything up and rebelled against you. What do you do? I'd probably wipe it out, start over. What'd you do? But our God, who's outside of time decides to enter into time, who's outside of suffering, outside of pain, decides to come here and experience life as we know it, to get tired, to learn, to grow, to be tempted with every temptation we've experienced. That's a scandal. But why? Matthew chapter 2, look at verse 1. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And so in two verses, we've got two different kings. For we saw his star when he rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. So everybody's upset about this. In verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and this is not Isaiah the prophet, this is Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And so we'll just stop right there. You can go all the way through verse 12 or all the way through the whole chapter to get the real whole story. And a lot of times we don't like to read the very end part because it's kind of controversial. And you don't see it in the nativity stories or any of those kinds of things, but it's there. And so you can read through the whole chapter to get it. But what we see here is that Matthew's intentionally, deliberately pitting two kings against one another. Did you see that in verses 1 and 2? In verse 1, we oftentimes just read past it. It was in the time of King Herod. Herod was the king. But these wise men, they've come from a far distance. We don't know exactly where. Many people believe it's Babylon, over 900 miles away. And they're looking for the one, and you can underline this in your Bible, if you do this in your Bible, the one born king of the Jews. If they just said we're looking for the king of the Jews, then people would have sent him to Herod. That's not the problem. It's the one born king of the Jews. And what we see through the Gospel of Matthew is that Matthew's got this kingdom theme. And some of you that are familiar with the Gospel of Matthew will know some of these verses. When Jesus came preaching in Matthew chapter 4, he came preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. In Matthew chapter 5, he talks about and teaches about the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 6, some of you know this, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He gives parables in chapter 13 through chapter 25 that talk about the kingdom of God. And so there's this theme of king and kingdom here. The, the question that Matthew's portraying before us is, who's your king? And here's the, the truth that's ultimately pointed to you through Matthew chapter 2. Jesus came to be your king. And that's our main point today. It's really the only point today. A simple message is that Jesus came. Why did he come? Why, why did he come to earth? He came to be your king. And you see the, the conflict that's intentionally set up here. This verse, verse 1, we just kind of naturally read by it. In the days of Herod the king. And we kind of read that and we think, all right, so Herod was the king. I don't know much of the historical background. His nickname was Herod the Great. He must have been a decent king. He wasn't. He was an awful king. In fact, he's called king of the Jews. He's not even fully Jewish. He's half Edomian. The Jews didn't accept him as king. He tried to portray being a good Jew. He didn't eat any pork. Sorry, North Carolina barbecue lovers. We all have blind spots in our lives, though, right? Like, that's one of the reasons why we need community, why we need each other. We point out stuff in each other's lives. One of the reasons why we try and get everybody to be in a small group in our church so you have other people that can speak truth into your life that are grounded in the word. And Herod had some blind spots that he's trying to be a good Jew by not eating pork, but he murders people like it's a hobby. One of the Ten Commandments is thou shalt not murder, if you're not familiar with uh, Jewish religion. And he's doing this. And, and something else you need to know, and there's a character that's really significant here in the context of Matthew chapter 2 that we don't find in Matthew chapter 2. It's Herod's boss. His name is Caesar Augustus. Some of you, when you read the Christmas story on Christmas Day, you'll read Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. There should be a census taken of the entire world. Do you know why? He was the ruler of the entire known world. His dad was Julius Caesar, made famous by the salad. You've probably seen that before. <laughs> Some of you know him from maybe history when you're in elementary school or whatever. And his dad claimed to be a god. And Caesar Augustus, you can look up on your phones, just Google, what does Augustus mean? Caesar Augustus said that he was the son of a god. And do you know how he attributed his deity, how he claimed his deity? It was that there was a star that came shooting through the sky, a moving star. Probably Halley's Comet. And so with that in mind, and knowing what Herod is like, and Herod, I told you that he's a wicked guy, he killed a bunch of people. Uh, Herod had 11 wives, 43 kids. Can you imagine bedtime with 43 kids? 
43. Some of you have three kids and you can't even find one of them at bedtime. Like 43 kids. I'm going to guess Herod didn't parent like you do though. He killed two of his sons because he thought they were trying to steal his throne. The guy's like 70 years old. He had one of his wives killed. Listen to this. You want to talk about you think you got problems in your marriage? Listen to this. He goes on a trip and he thinks his wife's going to have him killed. So he tells his guys, he says, if I die on this trip, kill my wife. He didn't die on the trip. He got back, but she knew about that. <laughs> that doesn't, that's worse than not remembering to bring the milk home, fellas. So they had a little conflict. He killed her. If anybody threatens his throne, he kills them. That's why all of Jerusalem is scared when these guys come in that dress different, that act different. They're not kings, by the way. They're, they're wizards. They're rich. We don't know that there's three of them. So sorry, I just ruined some of your, your childhood songs. We three kings, right? That's just bonus material. That's not the point of this message. Just trying to ruin Christmas as, your, as a kid. But just kidding. You want to keep singing the song? It's fine. Just know it's not true. <laughs> History. We don't have anything in the Bible that tells us there's three of them. But the Eastern religion believes there's 12 kings, by the way, or 12 uh, wise men. Here, we don't know. There might have been 20. Let's imagine there's five just to mess everybody up. So we're not 12, we're not three. There's five wise men. They come in. They're rich dudes. We can tell by the gifts they give. They probably got bodyguards with them. They probably got an entourage of people that are there to help them make a journey. Camels didn't have cruise control, FYI, if you didn't know that. 900 miles to come see Jesus? So try and imagine this scene knowing all of that. These guys that are dressed different with their big entourage, they speak different, they've got a funny accent, they show up into the town, and what did it say? They were saying, where's the one born king of the Jews? By the way, that is a present participle. Here's why that matters. Because the present tense is a continuous tense. It's the present tense right now. It's the present tense right now. It's still the present. When it says they were saying... It means they're going, hey, where's the one born king of the Jews? Where's the one born? Anybody that would listen to the question, they keep asking this question over and over to everybody in the city. And can you imagine from their perspective as they're asking Jews, where's the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star. <laughs> you want to know why Herod's upset? His whole job is to keep Caesar happy. Caesar rules the entire world. They didn't have email. How do you rule the entire world from one location when it takes you nine months to travel from one spot to the other? You set up these other kings. The king's only job is to keep Caesar happy. And they get to keep their job. They get to keep their power. And that's what Herod was concerned with. So Herod's upset because what we have here is we've got two kings in conflict with one another. This child, the one born king of the Jews, and, and Herod. And so you've got one king who's rightfully born king of the Jews, one who's not. You've got one king who's all-knowing, one who's not. One king who's sovereign, one who's not. One king who's caring, one who's not. One king that's worthy of worship, one that's not. Do you know what Matthew's asking us here? Who's your king? Who is your king? And who is our king as a church? But you and I know that most of us aren't tempted to worship Herod. That's not the, the point here, and that's not the call. In fact, just, just to be real, uh, we wouldn't even know who Herod was if he wasn't a pawn in God's plan to put Jesus Christ on display. Think about how many hundreds, if not thousands of kings have existed throughout history. We don't even have a clue what their, no one knows what their name was. And so this is all, all sovereignly designed to set up that Jesus should be our king. But when we look at this passage, it's almost like, and I brought this little crown here. It's almost like each one of us is given a crown when we're born. And we have to decide who we're going to king in our lives. Who's going to sit on the throne? And if you see over here, I've got these three chairs set up. 
Uh, there's three chairs because if you look at our passage of Scripture, what you'll see is there's really, you could say three characters, but there's three responses to Jesus in the passage. And each one, I think, represents one of the things that we can do. The first one is Herod, which Herod, I don't think, is tempting for us to be uh, worshiping of Herod, but it's, it's tempting for us to be like Herod. And what Herod was trying to preserve in his life was that he would be on the throne. And so I'll just put here self. And so many of us were tempted to be like Herod, especially in a religious context, because in a religious context, look at what Herod does in the passage. What did he say at the end of the part of the passage that I read to you? He says, when you find him, come tell me so I can go worship him too. (laughs) He's giving lip service to Jesus being king, but everything he's doing in his life is so that he can maintain control, that he can be king. So self is on the throne. Here's the problem. When self is on the throne of your life, you're naturally in conflict with Jesus. It's inevitable that if you're going to be king of your life, that you will be in conflict with Jesus Christ. The Bible says God opposes the proud. How proud do you have to be to think that you would be better at running your life than the sovereign, all-knowing king of the universe that existed for all of eternity? But we do. And you even hear people say, I could never worship a God who does things different than you would do it. It's evidence that you're on the throne. When you start thinking you know better than everybody else, it's evidence that you're on. Whenever there's a hint of self-righteousness in your life, it's evidence that you don't have to be a control freak to be on the throne of your life. You just have to be proud, and you will be conflicted. The next group you see, if you go to the passage, it's easy to read past them. They're the religious folks. Did you see them? Herod, it's interesting that Herod, when he hears about the one born king of the Jews, makes the deduction, that's the Christ. That's the Messiah. And so he asks, where's the Messiah to be born? But he doesn't know his Bible. This is such an easy question. He calls in these Bible scholars, the religious folks. And he asks them, where, where's the Messiah to be born? In verse 6 of your Bible, if you've got your Bible there, they answer and they quote Micah 5.2. Now, it would be the equivalent of... This question is so easy. Let me just, I, I bet most of you here probably have heard of John 3.16, for God so loves the world, right? You've got to say it like Billy Graham, for God so loves the world. It's probably the most popular verse in the entire New Testament. Can you imagine calling some New Testament scholars that study the Greek text and they know Aramaic and they're, they're looking at all the ancient manuscripts and they're studying 12, 14 hours a day and then say, hey, we had to call in the, the biggest experts and we want to know, who does God love? Uh, the world? Everyone? Never made a person he didn't love? Thanks, can I get back to the Greek? Like, it's a ridiculous question almost. And, and, and Herod asked him the question, where's the Messiah to be born? Easy, Micah 5.2, in Bethlehem. Like, you didn't know that? Bethlehem. Here's the interesting thing about this passage, though. They're in Jerusalem. Which shows us, first of all, the star did not lead the wise men the entire way. They saw the star. They knew that it was in Israel. And so they go to the capital city, Jerusalem. But then they needed more guidance. And so these guys step in and they say, Micah 5, or, yeah, Micah 5, 2, Bethlehem. And they're six miles away from Bethlehem. You read your Bible all throughout. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. All of the story are surrounding this. Nowhere does it ever even imply that these guys took a step towards Bethlehem. And so what they chose to be on the throne of their lives was their comfort. Everything that we can tell, they went back to studying their Bibles. All right, is that it? Micah 5.2, I got the answer right. I'm going to go back to things I'm comfortable with. 
For some of you, religion is your comfort. It's like a crutch. Jesus is not a radical transformer in your life. He's not the king. And it's so easy, especially in North Raleigh, right? Like to, to have comforts of this life would be the thing that, that kind of guide us through this life. And I'm not saying God is our comforter. I'm not saying that comfort is wrong. But when comfort sits on the throne of your life, do you know what it leads to in your relationship with Jesus? The same thing that happened with those religious guys. Complacency. We become complacent. But then the next option should be an obvious option. It's with the Magi. They travel 900 miles. To cut. They're pagan wizards. Do you think God, God who has a plan for the nations, you don't think this is intentional? We talk oftentimes about the shepherds and the unclean people coming to see these wizards from 900 miles away. The, the Jewish religious leaders won't go see Jesus six miles away. Because Jesus is the one rightfully born king and should be king of our lives. And when Jesus is king of our lives, we become consumed with Jesus Christ. We should be consumed. with if, if God really left heaven, came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, we should be consumed with Jesus Christ. And we see in this passage of Scripture at least four reasons why. We should be consumed with this king. Here's the first one. These two kings are in conflict with one another. The first one is this. Jesus is an all-knowing king. You see, Herod, he didn't even know Micah 5 too. He has to call these guys in, ask them this question. He didn't even know. Contrast that with Emmanuel, God, the very God, God who created the, in the beginning, God. Contrast these two kings. He didn't even know where the king's at. Jesus came at just the right time to this place and knows everything that's happening. If you don't believe that, read Psalm 139. One of the, I was reading it this morning. It's the, the first passage. When I first trusted Jesus as my Savior, I didn't really know the Bible. And I went to the guy who had told me about a relationship with Jesus, and I said, hey, I don't understand this book. What do I do? And he said, here's what I want you to do. Go to Psalm 139 and write it down, read it, and then write it down in your own words. And we'll get together and we'll talk about it. And what we were doing is talking about what is the, what is the Bible actually saying? And so I did that. Do you know what I, what I read when I read Psalm 139? That God knows everything about me. He knows, he knows when I stand up and I sit down before I do it. He knows my words before I say them. I can talk fast. <laughs> it says he knows every word before it's on your tongue. It also says he knows our thoughts before we think them. Well, that messed me up. Because I've had some dark and evil thoughts. I'm probably the only one. But that begs the question, you knew that, but you still came? If you read a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 1, it says that his name will be Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. That's why he came. Because I was so sinful. Because you were so sinful. He knows everything about us. Do you know what that means? He, he knows every story of every person that will ever walk through the doors of that lobby. And, and what we see, if you want to know what his presence is like, is how does Jesus respond to that? Well, what about in Mark 9? When he comes and these people, they're just gathered. Just a fall. He's like, he can't get any space. I just look at the little alone time. And, and all these people show up and he looks out at them and he says, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Wouldn't it be amazing if this all-knowing God would give us eyes as a church to think about getting ready for, for the things that will happen on this campus, give us eyes to see the needs of people out in that lobby? So that you would have the ability when somebody walks out in that lobby after a sermon, doesn't strike them quite the right way and they're upset about it and you see it on their face. And you can be Jesus to them in that moment. 
or, or somebody's under conviction and you can be there, or somebody's going through a difficult time and you notice it, or, or just to be the person that you're standing there, you're talking to your friends in the lobby and you notice there's somebody that's not talking to anybody. To be the person that, don't you think Jesus would be like, excuse me, I have not met those people, I'm going to go talk to them right now. Wouldn't it be amazing if God would give us eyes to see people the way that he sees people? Because he knows all of our stories and he's never created a person he doesn't love. To notice the people that come. There are going to be people next week that come through our doors. They're going to be looking for a reason not to come back. And they might experience Jesus through you. Wouldn't that be amazing? This is an all, he's an all-knowing king. But the other thing is he's not just an all-knowing king. He's, a, he's a, an all-caring king. Jesus is a caring king. Did you see in verse 6? In verse 6, there's an interesting title that's given to Jesus. In fact, what Matthew does here is he doesn't just quote uh, Micah 5.2. He blends in a, a passage of scripture from 2 Samuel. And he calls Jesus a shepherd. Did you see it? It says in verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Isn't that interesting? A ruler and a shepherd. So when people thought of kings, they thought of people like Herod, who ruled with an iron fist. When they thought of shepherds, they thought of those people that hang out with those stupid, nasty animals of sheep, and they care for them, and they guide them, and they protect them. But those two things didn't go together. Where else have we seen a shepherd king? God is our first shepherd king. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What do you see? Protection, provision, guidance, kind of like all the things he's done in the life of these wise men to bring them 900 miles, then direct them to the Savior. God is the shepherd king. If you were with us last week, uh, Pastor Scott, Pastor Scott, where are you at? In here, 2.0? There he is, (laughs) 2.0. Pastor Scott, the younger, he likes to refer to himself as around the office, Preach a great message in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I think 1 Samuel chapter 17 gives us a good picture of a shepherd king. Because David, was a, he was the second king in Israel, he was a shepherd king. Remember he was a shepherd boy? And what's happened in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's the passage where he fights the, uh, Goliath. If you're just a sports fan, you've heard David versus Goliath. It's kind of an analogy people will use. Anybody who plays Alabama, David versus Goliath is kind of the, the story. But except for Goliath wins every time in the sports things. At any rate, that's not the, the point of that. But what happens is that there's a verse that's real easy to read past that illustrates what a shepherd king is. And it happens when when David shows up and Saul's king, but David's been anointed king. And his brothers are mocking him. He's just a little brother. You're just here to see a fight. And then he starts talking about fighting Goliath. And Saul says, you can't. You're just a boy. And let me read you the verse. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 34. It says, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And if I'm Saul, I'm going, that's my point. <laughs> and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. Now, I'm going to guess, and most of us aren't familiar with being a shepherd, but just try and imagine being a shepherd. You're, you're laying out, no street lights, no city lights. You're just seeing stars. You're leaning up against a tree. There are no other humans anywhere around. You're hanging out with a bunch of sheep, Okay. That's gross. That's nasty. We don't have to like do a big study on sheep. Sheep are, are ridiculous. Go to a farm. They just bad. They, they just smell bad. Like it's everything's bad about sheep. Like if you, you don't talk to a sheep about your, you don't talk, you grab a lamb and be like, I had a rough day at work. You might go home if you have a dog. I'm a dog person. If you have a dog, you might say to your dog, you know, you wouldn't believe what these people are doing today at the office, and they just look at you with like these compassionate eyes, right? They're thinking to themselves, I wish you'd give me a snack, but they, they're looking at you like they're understanding, like listening to what you're saying. Sheep are just like, meh, meh, meh. Like they're just biting, spitting, just nasty animals. You're out there with them. There's no connection. You're in isolation. 
and you hear a lion? What are you going to do? Have you ever watched Animal Planet? <laughs> Have you seen li- lions? Do you see how a lion just walks? They're just like, they got a strut. It's like, I'm going to kill you and you can't do nothing about it. Like, it's just like, they're, they're awesome. You hear a lion, it grabs one of the lambs. What are you going to do? I'm going up the tree. Like, if you're, if you're like, well, people at church might ask about it. I'd be like, I tried. No, couldn't get there. Read you the rest of this verse. The shepherd king. I went after him. I struck him. Delivered it out of its mouth. Didn't even say kill the lion. This is the point. The lion talks back. He says, and if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard, struck him and killed him. Here's what he's saying. Not just I'm a bad dude, which he must be. But a shepherd's willing to lay their life down for the sheep. You see, most of us would be, ah, just one of those stupid sheep. We'll find another one somewhere. But Jesus goes after them. In fact, Jesus talks about being the good shepherd in John chapter 10, and he says this, John chapter 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And that's, you have a caring king. Who else is going to die for your sins? And you're not going to be consumed with Christ. We're going to be conflicted with Jesus. We're going to live our lives in battle with Jesus, but claim he died for our sins. We're going to live our lives complacent about Jesus. Ah, yeah, some wise guys showed up, and this story, and God became man, and... Really? How, how are we not consumed with Jesus? All-knowing king, all-caring king, but he's also sovereign. He's the only sovereign king. Everything in this passage screams God's sovereignty, by the way. The fact how he directs these wise men, uh, what he does later in the passage when he tells Joseph, go to Egypt. He say, when all those babies get killed in Bethlehem, that's the part of the story we don't like to talk about. All these babies, being, being close to Jesus is dangerous, by the way. All these babies in, Jeru- in Bethlehem are killed and he, he protects his child, his son, Jesus. But you know the thing that I love is the details. It's the little details. Think about his sovereignty. You've got this wicked king, and it looks like this wicked king is ruling. God's still overruling. You've got these complacent religious people. Like, why would you not go six miles? But he uses the complacent religious people, he uses the wicked king to get God's truth, Micah 5 2 into the hands of these wise men that didn't know the Bible. He's sovereignly directing the entire time through all the details. Think about in the life of our church, our story, how we ended up here today in this building. That God would have a multi-million dollar company that runs movie theaters decide they're going to renovate nationwide. They weren't thinking about us as a church. God was. They're going to have some executives with the North Carolina Department of Transportation decide, you know where they're going to build that church? That'd be a great place for a road. (laughs) I wanted to smack somebody when they made that decision. (laughs) Jesus didn't allow me to have that opportunity to blow it. But God was sovereignly working those pieces together. At the same time, the people that were meeting here at this campus, they were dreaming of what church could be like. I got an email this week from Jock Murray, at the time he was the chairman of the elders at Covenant Church. And I just want to read you some of the email uh, that he shared with me and a a group of some other guys. He said, at the same time that we were going through that stuff with uh, losing our property, with the theater, all that was going on, it was so discouraging. They were casting a vision, 2016, 2017, of being a vibrant community of believers growing more and more like Christ every day. And he read this to the congregation. So you're in your car, Pulling in the front lot. 
All the close spots are taken as usual, so you have to park at the far end of the lot today, but that's okay because there's a bunch of young families that are scurrying around campus to get their kids into church. But we're a vibrant community, not just a group of people together. He says this, we weren't just a group of people, we're a community. So you stop and listen to some of the conversations that are going on during the meet and greet. Because we're a community, we care deeply about and are involved in each other's lives. And you hear this in the conversations. The conversations aren't servicey about the weather and work. People are sharing with others their joys and their challenges. We hear others following up with prayer requests and important events. But we're a vibrant community of believers. And he says this, what brings us together is not a common interest, social or family pressure. It isn't about what brought you here this Sunday. What brought you here is you prioritize being here over everything else you could call, that could call you on Sunday morning because you believe Christ died for you. The members of your community have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ because they believe God raised him from the dead and rescued them. We're a vibrant community of believers growing more like Christ every day. He says, those of us sitting in the worship center on this imaginary Sunday someday in the future aren't just Christians. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. And as disciples, we want to learn everything our Savior will teach us. And we want to live our lives mastered by him. We believe that this paid-for building, which it wasn't paid for at the time when he read the statement to them on Strickland Road, is just our base camp. We come to each Sunday to be refreshed and prepared, but the focus of our life as disciples happens outside these walls where we're studying the word of God and praying without ceasing so that we can be salt and light in a dark world. We're a vibrant community of believers growing more like Christ every day. And then he goes on to tell them, we're not there yet, he tells the church. But in the email he sent me, he says, on December 2nd, 2018, that's today, by the way, this vision comes to life. He says, for sure. But the next part of what he says, I think, highlights God's sovereignty. And not in the way we expected when we presented the vision, but just the way God planned it. You have a sovereign king, Southbridge. Here's what I hope, what I hope happens in the life of every person who's been on this portion of our journey as a church, is that there will be times in your individual life when you are going to go, God, what are you doing? Why aren't you doing it my way? Why is this happening? I hope that you'll come back to what's happened in the life of our church as a whole and go, it might take years to to get the answer to those questions. But God is a sovereign king who's in control, who's working for your good and his glory. Amen? We've got a sovereign king. We've got a caring king. We've got an all-knowing king. But the last thing, the last thing, there's more here. The last one I'll share with you today is this. He's a revolutionary king. To be revolutionary means this. The revolution is to cause a dramatic change. Sometimes it's sudden, sometimes it's subtle, but a dramatic change. And it's what Jesus wants to do in each one of our lives. And it's what he wants to do in us corporately as well. So you think about it. Think about what he did in the life of these wise men. What were they doing? I bet you they weren't planning on, think about the gifts they give, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We didn't even read that part of the passage. You keep going through the passage. Those are expensive gifts. They probably had different plans for that money. God started to reveal himself to them through a star. These astrologers, these wizards, starts to draw them. Many Bible scholars believe through Daniel from the Old Testament. Ultimately, they'd have some manuscripts that might point them in this direction, but they didn't know all the, the Bible. And so he sovereignly directs them to this, the one born, king of the Jews, Emmanuel, Jesus, who came to save us from our sins. And they become consumed with Christ. You look at it for us, you know, the temptation for us as a church, we come into this building and we can start thinking, that we've arrived, become proud and arrogant, we'd be in conflict with Jesus Christ. 
So we're going to live our lives in conflict with Jesus and then ask Jesus to change people's lives? Or we could come to this place corporately as a church and start to become comfortable. We don't have to get up quite as early in the morning anymore. Kind of show up and things are provided for me. And, and we go to our comforts and we become complacent about Jesus Christ. Or we could remember who this king is and become more and more consumed with Jesus Christ. And what would that look like? What would that look like in your life individually? If you were actually consumed with Jesus Christ as your king. Do you think that maybe, maybe it might be more like these wise men than it is these religious folks or Herod who's trying to battle to keep control or the religious guys, they know the Bible, but it doesn't really make any difference in their life. But these guys, it's whatever bit of revelation they're given, they're guided and directed in their life through that process. And so as God speaks to you, you follow, even if he leads you places you never thought you would go. That maybe he'll call you to make sacrificial gifts, use of your life, like, think about what's happening at Christmas time. There's going to be Christmas time. Americans, we're going to spend millions of dollars giving each other presents for Jesus' birthday. <laughs> what, if, what if God calls you this Christmas to give us, make a sacrificial gift to Jesus? How do you do that? Well, that what you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. Maybe some of you will adopt. Maybe some of you will get to know some people in our church that are adopting, pay for their adoption. Maybe some of you, it will be the Compassion Sunday we do in a couple weeks, and you'll sponsor a child around the world for years, maybe 10, 12 years of their life. I don't know what it would be. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not about the, your finances. Maybe it's about sharing the gospel with somebody. Maybe you get bold with the gospel. Maybe you'll invite somebody to come to church next week, and that's a big deal to you. It's not just, hey, we'll bank on the church doing some you know, advertisements here, but you'll go to your neighbor, and you'll tell them that you want them to come to church, and you'll tell them why, because you've been radically changed. Or maybe, man, I don't know what it would be for you. What would it be for us corporately? Think about what would it look like for us to be consumed with Christ as a church. If we were consumed with Christ, we'd be the most outwardly focused group of people anyone's ever come into contact with, but it would flow from the way we love one another. We love one another so well. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, that we love one another so well that those, we know we got people that got our back. We know that we got people that are for us. And so then that frees us up to go out and serve other people. That we'd be a place, if we were so consumed with Christ, we wouldn't have to worry about, you know, political rants or whatever might happen at different churches around town. We'd be making a big deal about Jesus. Jesus would be setting people free from sin when they gather together on Sunday mornings. And people would be being saved on Sunday mornings. Addictions would be, would be broken for people. People would be walking in freedom from sin. They would hear the truth rather than lies. You, you see what kind of king Jesus is. He's the king of truth. When he's being questioned by Pilate, the title that he's given in this passage is nailed above him on the cross, king of the Jews. When he's questioned before Pilate, and Pilate says, so you're saying you're a king? He says, my kingdom's not of this world. I'm a kingdom of truth. We're living in a place of lies. See, if we would grasp Jesus Christ as our king, it would turn our entire worlds upside down. Amen? So is he your king? And will he be our king as a church? And the answer is not what we say in this moment. It's what steps we take after this moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for meeting with us today. Thank you for being our king. Thank you for being a king that's worthy of worship. Thank you for being a sovereign king. Thank you for being a caring king. Thank you for being an all-knowing king. Thank you for being a king who would come to us, not just wait for us to come to you, but oh, what an amazing king, Southbridge. The king who came for us is worthy to be come to. Some of you here might need to come to Jesus today. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a little while and God's pricked your heart in this moment. And you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. How many of you have never trusted Jesus? You want to trust Jesus as your Savior today? Would you just raise your hand up if that's true for you? Just raise your hand up and, and tell the Lord, like, I need to trust your son Jesus Christ as my Savior right now in this moment. 
Some of you here, you've become complacent with Jesus, and you need to repent of that. Would you acknowledge that before him? Would you raise your hand up and say, that's me. I'm complacent. I've grown apathetic to the truths of your word. And I see people raising their hands. Raise your hand up. Just letting them know, saying, that's me. I want to turn from that today. I want to turn to you. You know what he tells the church in Ephesus? He says, you know, you do all this good stuff, but you've lost your first love. Do you know what he tells them to do? Repent. Stop doing that. Turn back to the things you did. Whenever, wherever you were at, when you actually were on fire for Jesus, go back to that and start doing those things. And some of you here, you're in conflict with Jesus because you've been proud and arrogant in your life. You need to repent of that sin as well. Father, I come before you on behalf of my brothers and sisters and your son Jesus Christ here, and I pray, God, that you'd work in our hearts. Thank you for meeting us in your word. Thank you for meeting us in this moment. God, I pray as we go to sing to you that, that we, would, we would take serious, not missing the moment of what you're doing in our hearts. I pray if there's anybody here that needs to trust your son Jesus as Savior, they would call upon Jesus right now. If you want to call upon Jesus, you can just pray this prayer with me. And I'm going to pray acknowledging sin, believing Jesus died and rose from the dead, and, and ask Jesus to be Lord of my life. And, and you just pray these words with me. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that your son Jesus Christ died for my sins. And right now in this moment, I want to ask Jesus to be my Savior. You just pray that prayer and ask Jesus to be your Savior. It's the most significant decision you could ever make. And then would you tell somebody before you leave today? Or tell someone you know that's been praying for you. Or write it on your connection card and drop it in the offering box before you take off today. Because that's just the first step. And Father, I pray for those here that have taken that step already, but have next steps to take. God, will you spur us? Will you not just let us come and hear your word and, and be like those religious guys? And then, yeah, okay, and go back to our comforts. Help us to be consumed with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.